Hello, welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thanks for being here today. I know you have a lot of choices. You can find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. If you can, please take a second and drop a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe you can share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds can help me get better and help other Cub fans find the show. You can also help support the Cubs PS Plus podcast by going to cubspsplus.patreon.com. There are four support tiers that come with added perks, and your support will help me keep this podcast ad-free. Welcome into episode 52. With the NFL season starting, we'll call this the Pat Mahomes episode of this podcast. For Patrick's dad, who wore number 52 for the Cubs back in 2002. This week I had a really enjoyable conversation with CHGO's Brendan Miller. Brendan and I talk about a range of topics, mostly centered around how this team is having some of the success we thought possible, but not doing it in any kind of real, normal, expected way. Brendan does his usual great job breaking down the players, especially the pitchers, and I think there's something in here for everyone. Please join us. Are you ready? I'm Rick. Here. We. Go. Hey, this week I'm thrilled to be joined by Brendan Miller, the pitch doctor from the CHGO Cubs podcast. Brendan, welcome to the show. This will be fun, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Great. How did you... Uh, tell me how you got into baseball and how you got into all the advanced analytics and stuff like oh, that. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I've been obsessed with baseball like since I was, you know, a 10-year-old kid. Um you know, I was never good enough to play professionally, so I had to find some other outlet to, to fill this obsession. Um, you know, I've been doing a podcast with Corey Friedman now for almost, I think, eight or nine years. Uh, so it's been a while. And then, you know, by trade, uh, you know, I am a scientist, so I do mm-hmm. a lot of like numbers and data analysis during the day and half my time I'm trying to hide my computer screen so I can do more <laughs> baseball stuff during work. So that's how I got to uh, where I am. Perfect. Yeah. I originally, uh, I think you guys were the first Cubs podcast. I think I picked up on Wow, since you guys for a long time. Uh, that's cool. That makes me feel, that makes me feel good. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I want to hit a lot of topics today. I want to talk a lot about pitching. Some sure. of the things are going right for the Cubs, but I mean, I think the big news of the week is PCA, right? I mean, Oh man. Yeah. Um, did you get a chance to see, you probably didn't get a chance to see today's game being in the afternoon. Oh, of course I did. Yeah. No, I always, I always have that, always had that screen on, you know, awesome. I always, I always catch these games. Well, I think the last two days, I think we've seen kind of sort of what we expected to see from PCA. Like kid comes up, he's not going to be polished, ready to go as a hitter. Yeah. But we saw it last night. I mean, he was flying all over the outfield. The defense is off the charts, right? And you, mm-hmm. you knew too, like this is the ideal trip for him to get called up you have the spacious outfields mm-hmm. at cores and chase field huge alleys you saw what you can do it's not a surprise what he's doing uh, i'm curious about the offense and how he faces major league pitching but this is the ideal situation to call him up in yeah and i thought today those the bats before were kind of hard to judge like he had he had the bunt and yeah um, didn't do a whole lot last night but not really anything bad like rbi ground out um but today, I thought he looked a little overmatched. Yeah, it's always hard. Like, you don't want to, at least for me, the way I watch these games, I don't want to try to overreact for a guy yeah. who's making his, you know, debut. 
uh, first day game, you know. So he did look a little overmatched, but just given how he's looked in Iowa, I was, I'm, I'm actually impressed how fast he's developed. There was a time earlier in the year when he was going through some like strikeout phases mm-hmm. before he was called up to Iowa, and I remember texting, you know, my good friend Greg Huss, you know, he does at Northside yep. Bound. I'm like, is this going to be an issue? Yeah, like is this? And you had Brian on recently. I saw that. I'm like, is this going to be an issue? Like these strikeouts. And, you know, he said, relax, hold on. And PCA did, to his credit, adjust strikeout rate, went down to around 20% before getting called up to Iowa. Mm-hmm. And even in Iowa, his overall contact rate was around 76%, which I think is fine for a young guy developing. Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing that I think we all have to keep in mind, it's been, what, seven plate appearances maybe at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody has those adjustments. But I remember, like, I know there have been some comparisons between him and Javi, right? Because they're the young, exciting, just balls to the wall, go full speed all the time. <laughs> I energy guys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I remember Javi would, every time he got promoted, he would crash for maybe a month and yeah. then he'd figure it out and then he'd blast off to the next level and repeat. And I think Pete's done the same thing, but looking back through, his adjustment periods were not that long. They're not. He, you know... Earlier in the year, I thought, man, it'd be cool to have PCA get called up in September, but I was being greedy. Like, I didn't genuinely think he would advance this fast, given some of the past injuries, given his still relative newness to the organization. I thought he had to go through a lot of adjustment phases. Mm -hmm. And if you look at how PCA approaches his at-bats now versus when he just got acquired from the Mets, he looks very different like different batting mm-hmm. mechanics, like you're, you know, a baseball coach, you can get into this more than I can, but he just looks different. And I still think he needs to adjust and make more contact for someone who has that power profile, which is not quite high. But mm-hmm. when I see guys adjust like this, it makes me believe that they can do it. They're not a finished product. They still have to adjust, but they're showing, they're showing the signs that they can do it. Yes. Well, I think the big balance for David Ross at this point now is going to be, I mean, he's talked about this isn't development time and and he's right. I know that I think he said that comment in a kind of an awkward way and then it yeah. got run with in other directions. But yeah, you know, if this is last year, you just go throw him in center field, play every day, get your five at bats and figure out whatever you can figure out before the season's over. But they're going to have to run balance. Like they pinch hit for him late today because he didn't look great and they need to, get some scoring in and, and there are going to be times where Mike Talkman probably is going to give you a better at bat than PCA. But yeah. Then, it, it will be interesting how they, they use him. Yeah. Um, you know, defensively, he's the best center fielder I've personally I've ever seen. I yes. <laughs> <Like> kind of, <laughs> kind of hyperbolic. I get it. He's a young guy, but I, personally, like I can't recall as many exciting quick first step center fielders who have ever debuted with the Cubs ever. That second catch last night, the one where he went to it's right absurd. center, he covered, I mean, what I, I was thinking about it, if that was a Wrigley Field equivalent, he's like starting in left center and going to where Saya stands all the time. I mean, he's ending up on Sheffield Avenue, if that's the yeah. Wrigley equivalent. <laughs> he's going straight through the Ivy on the streets. <laughs> and he just did the most casual slide with the little backhand oh, yeah, grab man. and yeah. pop that thing up and throw it in. He's got that attitude. You know, he's got that, that fearless attitude. I think over the next three years, him... Nico, Dansby, these guys like are just that ultra intense competitors in their own unique ways. But just mm-hmm. having that energy is going to be so fun to watch. I cannot wait to see those three guys for the next you know four years. 
And it's amazing. Like I, I, they all do it in such different ways. Like yeah, P- PCA does all the right things, but he's also very flashy. And Nico's a little more flashy than Dansby, but yeah, like I, you had a tweet this weekend and, and I was at the Labor Day Giants game. So being able to sit third base side, we had a great view of Dansby. He made that sliding play up the middle. His footwork and his it's hands unreal. are just perfect all the time. Dude, it's 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 unreal. I can watch him take fielding practice for like hours. Like the way, the way, because when I used to play, you know, in the infield, like there are times where you kind of come up on the ball a little bit like too fast, you know, anticipation. And he is just so intentional with like his hands, his glove placement. It it's not moving. There's zero hesitation at all times. No matter if the ball takes a uh, an uncomfortable hop, whether it's a routine play, and his momentum is always going to first base. It's remarkable how he makes it look so easy. Yeah, you tweeted about one of those this week, and it, it's one of those plays where, as a fan, you just watch it. It doesn't really look like much, but you zoom in on it. That was it. It was a it's bit of a short. It, it was yeah. not a short hop, but it was not a long hop either. It was, he was kind of caught in between. And he just made it look effortless. Yeah, you know, he has like these videos of him in uh, Ron Washington when he was with, um, you know, Atlanta. And you have those pregame drills and all that. But like, mm-hmm. you can tell when you watch him practice and those drills, the glove is not moving. Like he's almost like a goal glove, like first baseman in terms of like picking the ball, but at mm-hmm. shortstop. And that's very difficult to do with the with the variety of different hops and ground balls you get. And I remember hearing when the Cubs signed him, I'd seen him in Atlanta and the, I mean, he made some amazing plays in the playoffs, but I didn't follow him closely. Yeah. Um, hearing that like the arm strength was probably the weakness and I kind of see it, but I also see how he totally makes it irrelevant. Yeah. You know, I, so there was that one play too. He's wearing the city connectors. He's probably the Saturday game. And he makes a backhand play, and he rifles one over there from deep in a shortstop hole with pretty good arm strength, where mm-hmm. his release is like well over the top. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That may have been the hardest throw he's had all year. There are times where, and I know Stackhouse tries to like actually quantify arm strength, but there are times where I think his throws might be misclassified as higher effort throws when in reality he's just so good with his momentum and his footwork he doesn't need to actually exhibit like high intensity throws i think the arm strength is there is what i'm trying to say but he doesn't need to use it all the time that that may be true as well and he he definitely gets the ball out fast you can tell when if there's a fast runner even if he's in the hole it may not look like the hardest throw, but that's out of his hands in like milliseconds. I mean, the release is unbelievable. The footwork is unbelievable. He's he's a treat to watch. Like, honest to God, he's a treat to watch. I that's cannot so get enough Dansby Swanson defensive highlights. <laughs> I, I grew up on uh, Ryan Sandberg and Dunstan, so. Yeah, you know, everyone keeps telling me, go watch Dunstan, go watch Dunstan. I'm trying to find videos of him, but I can't find him. It's really hard. And yeah. if you find him, you're going to see six ground balls go between his legs and then Is that what it was like? Plays. Uh, at times, yeah, he he would miss the easy plays, but then he would just make okay. just ridiculous, like deep in the hole, jump up, throw it like a laser beam to first base. And how does he compare to like to Javi's defense? Javi's better. Okay. Um, Sean Dunson was really flashy. Okay. At least that's my memory. Like he would make the big plays that would make your eyes pop out of your head, and then eh, maybe not so good on the other stuff. But like he would cover a ton of ground on pop ups and yeah. Um, it was great, but between him and you know Sandberg was again not not really flashy, but he did the little things right 
all the time. I mean, I'm a sucker for all of it. I'm a sucker for the flashiness, for the like, routine, like no show going, whatever you want to call it. I'm a sucker for all of it. Any good oh, yeah. defensive infielder, I just love watching. Yeah. Um, so I, for this whole team, so we talked about the call-ups a little bit, but like on the whole, I am at this point, this this series was frustrating, obviously, but you know, I, I predicted 83 wins and I thought I was being optimistic before the season started. Um, I'm just thrilled to be mid-September and have the Cubs sitting in playoff position with what looks like, barring a total collapse, every game they play is going to matter basically down to the end of the season. Yeah. I, I, I thought like you, 83, 84 wins. The way the season shaped up was not how I thought they would get there, if that makes yeah. sense. It's been a bizarre like, season. Yeah. Like I thought if they were to get to this point they're currently at, I thought it would be a little bit more like well-rounded. Like I thought Cody Bellinger would be a, a, a good producer, but not to this extent mm-hmm. where the offense when he's on the field is among the best in the league. I thought the pitching, the back end of the rotation would be a little bit more um, rounded in depth. And it kind of is with Assad, but I thought maybe more contributions from like Wisniewski, more contributions from Smiley. And we're not mm-hmm. getting that. We're getting the extreme ends with Jordan Wicks producing, uh, getting the extreme ends even with Assad and uh, the extreme ends in my mind with Kyle Hendricks. So the way they're going about getting these wins in the forms of extreme performances, in my mind, from Wicks, from Assad, from Hendricks, who has a capsular tear, from Cody Bellinger being a top producer, different than how I, how I imagined it. But at the same time, I'm not surprised. Like in baseball, this tends to happen where mm-hmm. you get these guys who have particular ceilings and they they may reach those ceilings for the Cubs. They've been fortunate. A lot of those guys have reached those ceilings. I remember going into spring training and, you know, the rotation seemed pretty slotted except for the fifth spot because Hendricks was out. And I remember just reading about people, is it going to be Wisniewski? Is it going to be Assad? Is it going to be Killian? Is it going to be who? Adrian Sampson? And, you know, those depth things always have a way of working themselves out, don't they? Oh, I mean, always. The, yeah. The, the Cubs, it feels like the Cubs have had a good, solid three starters the entire season. Like, Stroh was great until he wasn't. Tyone was terrible until he wasn't. And then now that Tyone and Smiley have dropped off again, it, you know, it's Hendricks and Wicks and Assad picking up the slack and kind of the one constant's been Justin Steele. That's another extreme, right? Like uh, the way that I thought the season would go with Steele, I thought he'd be I thought he'd be one of the top guys in the rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, the fastball has just played up insanely. That, that he's able to go through the lineup so many times with that fastball. Stroman, the injury, in my mind, I didn't anticipate the fall off in the second half like that. But the when I was saying like the depth, the depth is there. If you think about it, having the guys come up and having Assad and Wicks, it is, it is there. It's just the way they're going about doing it is a little bit surprising, but also a testament to how the Cubs have developed many guys. And even their you know, older dudes, if you want to call them that, including like Hendricks. And mm-hmm. even still, like, maybe we can get into it, but the, the Tyone stuff, he has not been good this year, but he's still at times making it work, at least eating innings, even though he's a lot of work to do. Like, it's, it's, it's been a process for the entire coaching staff. Yeah, and let, let's start getting into it, because this is kind of the, some of the stuff I want to talk about. Let, let's start with Tyone, so you just brought him up. Yeah. Um, there are times where, 
like starting today, he struck out what I think four guys, five guys through two. And he'll go through these stretches where for two or three innings, it looks like, oh, okay, this is yeah. the tie we thought we were getting. And he had a little help defensively when Hap dropped that ball in the fourth. But um, when he loses it, like the fastball getting all that run that he has not typically had. Um, yeah. I still think there's enough there to be reasonably optimistic about the rest of the four-year stretch because I imagine he and Hadavi and the whole staff is, is going to dive in and work on that in the offseason. But... Like, what do you think when you watch Tyone? I'm thinking this is a really smart guy who has a deep pitch mix, who understands his game better than I would say the average starting pitcher. When I watch Tyone, I'm personally trying to learn about the process because mm-hmm. uh, I think his process is the insight into what like coaches are trying to do. And you can apply some of those lessons you learn from Tyone to other pitchers as well. With him... You brought up the fastball arm side run. It's mm-hmm. it's a problem. He has said it himself, it's a problem. Uh, if you plug in its metrics into a run predictor, it's going to say this is a problem fastball. And so how do you go about attenuating that problem? Well, what he's trying to do over the last few starts that I've, I think is going on, you never know for sure unless we have, you know, Unless I bug some guys to ask these guys questions yeah. about it, but I think Quick, let me was, call hot of you. yeah. <laughs> well, our guy Ryan Hur, I see HGO. I'm always like yeah. asking him, like, "Hey, asking this, asking this, asking this." So sometimes oh, I, I, we can actually get these information. Um, with him, it looks as if the cutter is changing over the past month, um, and he saw it not this start, but the previous start against Diamondbacks, where the cutter was pretty good. And even for the first few innings, the cutter was still quite good against the Rockies. Mm-hmm. The difference is that his cutter in April and May is quite different than what it is now. It was thrown like in April and May around 89, 90 miles per hour. Over the past month, it's gone down to about 87 and a half. And even against Diamondbacks, it was under 87. And he's having more uh, vertical break, downwards motion, actually. And he's using that pitch almost exclusively to right-handed batters, which I thought would be reversed. I thought the cutter would be used more to lefties because he has mm-hmm. more arms around that four seam, but there's a reason they're using the cutter more to righties. And it's possible given his certain profile that the arms had to run that four seam fastball is just not good in their expectations to righties. So they're trying to counter that using the cutter to righties while at the same time, still using that pitch to lefties, but in a way that can maximize his north to south curveball, which that was the case against the Diamondbacks. So I think that's the formula here and now in the next, what is it, two, three more starts in the season? Probably, um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's possible he can be that guy we saw in Arizona. I would not say it's likely. Uh, over the past six weeks, seven, eight starts, it has escaped him, even today against Colorado. I wouldn't say it's likely, but... He's a smart guy. He knows himself really well. And I always default to that attitude and that that ability to at least understand what needs to be done. So it would not surprise me if he can turn it around. I just wouldn't bet on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and he's. I think he said after his last start that some of the arm side run on the fastball, it's going to take basically breaking things down in the offseason to fix it. That's what he said. He said, he said like, quote, it's an offseason project. So it's like, all right, well, you know, hopefully he make it work for the rest of this season. But that's what he said, yeah. I think one thing that's really impressive with him is 
he he's just so matter of fact like he doesn't make excuses he's not hiding from anything he will sit down there and tell you all the things he's doing wrong yeah and why he thinks he's doing them wrong and unlike no other pitcher yeah that's the thing that's why like when i say oh you know I'm, i'm learning from him i'm literally hearing what he says and reorienting how i think about like pitch pitching because mm-hmm. like he is giving so much details like yeah i need my curveball to be 10 inches of, of cutting i need my curveball to be 10 inches of vertical break i'm like okay well let's go look at this let's go look at the stuff run predictors let's go see how his stuff and release point compares to other guys in the cup system and let's like learn from tyone like just because he's not producing doesn't mean he's an idiot not putting in the effort like some guys they know what needs to be done it's just hard to get to that point and i think with tyone over the course of the offseason, I have confidence he's going to figure it out. I think you just have to like trust that these guys are obsessive, competitive athletes with yes. the tools. And it didn't go well his way this year for unexpected reasons. But I have a gut feeling, not a gut feeling, I have confidence that those guys just end up figuring it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's got plenty of track record of being a really good pitcher. Yeah, he's just doing it in a very different way, right? Yeah. Like, he was doing it with the Yankees using a forcing fastball and a curveball. And now he's, when he does have success, he's doing it with a sweeping slider that grades among the best in the league and a cutter. So he's doing it very differently, which <laughs> kind of speaks to what I'm saying. It's like, oh, this guy's, you know, an obsessive athlete who can figure it out. But he's not the same guy as he was with the Yankees. And I think they want to try to match his Yankee self with his new Cub self. I think it's possible. And I will say, like, if it does happen, if he can actually sustain the new pitches he developed with the slider and the cutter and get back to that forcing fastball, like, he's going to be well above league average. Like, he's yeah, going to be way better than he was with the Yankees. Like, that's the thing that I'm always in the back of my mind. I'm like, all right, if he gets that forcing fastball back and he can sustain the, the degree of break with his slider, like, he's going to be a 3.5 or below ERA pitcher. And there's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. It's just, I would bet on that. Yeah, and it makes me think, you know, when they when the Cubs bring these guys in and they see a pitch they want to develop further, or they want to add something to the guy's mix, it oftentimes does work out in the end, but there are also times and places where guys sort of step back a little bit because now it's a new mix and not the same pitcher yeah. they were before. And I think, and I want your opinion on this, like Keegan Thompson this year has not looked the same as last year. And I had talked to Alex Cohen maybe two months ago when he was first sent down and... Alex was telling me his, his thought was that basically he was doing something different mechanically that was costing him his velo. Um, I guess, what do you see when you look at someone like Keegan and I know the Cubs have tried to change his mix and they brought, they've brought him along. He's been in the system yeah. for a long time, but like they were really finding some magic last year, but then also at times like the peripherals didn't really support necessarily the results he was getting. Um, like what do you see when you look at Keegan Thompson? So, Interestingly, when he came back up before he was just sent back down, uh, he said that his weight was an issue. I don't know if you caught that. Where he I did gained, not. yeah. So he gained, in his words, I don't know if it's true, but this is what he said to the media. He gained 15 pounds in the past two months, and so I'm like, all right, that's weird. So that's weird. Typically, you know, you have one side where you have like Tyone who's saying, hey, you know, my pitch types are not working because my release points messed up, and mm-hmm. I'm like my grip is changing and then Keegan maybe that's also true but he's saying yeah my weight was an issue or I'm fatiguing out and so he gained 15 pounds in a way to mitigate some of that fatigue 
So then it starts, I start to think, okay, well, if his fatigue is a problem, maybe that's contributing to some of the poor performances, lack of mm -hmm. command, different pitch shapes, and that's not really the issue, the pitch shapes and the pitch types. It's more just being able to sustain himself. And then you go back to last year, that was a long season for Keegan Thompson. He was going was. back and forth from the rotation to the bullpen in two, three, four inning stints to five inning stints at time, topping out out of the bullpen, 94, 95, 96, developing a new slider. That was taxing for him. So when I look at him, yes, his stuff looks a little different. Yes, there's some like leakage of his new slider and some other pitch types. But is that the main issue? I'm, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say that is and i like how you know, i kind of default to what he's saying where the right. weight is maybe an issue and that i mean that'll definitely change i mean i i was not a pitcher so i know enough to cause problems but <laughs> my, my my oldest son pitched in high school so watching him develop and watching him work with coaches and go through what he was going through yeah has helped me look at things in a new way and, and i can see like just watching him go from like a skinny 140 pound sophomore to you know 180 185 pound senior like that just that kind of change in your body yeah. changes everything so your son gained 40 pounds in like two years he gained most of it in one year oh my god so like uh, and all we did was hit, all we did was hit the gym for like a year <laughs> so did he gain velocity in the process he did yeah okay and so i'm sure like he was able to he was able to last deeper in the games you know have yeah so i mean you know, you have a high school kid versus, you know, a professional major league baseball player is very different. Um, but the impacts but, are similar. Yeah. I mean, uh, I remember listening to CC Sabathia who since he retired has lost quite a bit of weight. And he said, mm -hmm. yeah, like I intentionally kept on pounds because like I was like, I, I needed it. Like he needed that reserve to get through the season. So, you know, it doesn't matter for certain guys. And it's interesting too. Cause like a guy like CC with the weight that he carried, I wonder yeah. if, if it would be a detriment now with the pitch clock. You never know, right? I mean, yeah. if some guys are so unique, they have their ways of going about things where, you know, counterintuitively, sometimes you think, oh, less weight is better. Sometimes more weight is good. You just never know. It's very individualistic. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about steel. So, and we can maybe kind of tie steel and the sod together because they've both been yeah. in the system for a long time. I, I know steel was... Um, at times he was a top prospect, but he had obviously had the Tommy John, which knocked him down off the list. Um, and then Assad is a guy who, you know, I was talking to Brian Smith last week and he was saying that, uh, you know, there was a point where people didn't think he was going to get past double A. Yeah. Um, and these guys just kept at it and they both kind of, neither one of them has eye popping stuff. I know we can talk about steel first, given his Cy Young candidacy, but like effectively he's throwing two pitches but I also think his fastball has characteristics where it actually kind of presents as two different pitches, at least two yeah. different pitches there. Yeah. Um, what do you see when you watch steel? Like, I mean, he's, he's clearly making this work. The fact that he doesn't have four or five pitches isn't holding him back. I am seeing a pitcher who I never thought I would see. <laughs> That's <laughs> the best way I would describe it. Uh, in 2021, when he was pitching, you know, at the time it was out of the bullpen, out of the rotation, mm -hmm. but there was a point in September 2021 and he started throwing sinkers uh, about once every four pitches. And, you know, he doesn't throw that pitch anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so he started throwing sinkers once every four pitches. He talked in that same time 
period. I don't know like which exact month or whatever, but he was talking about how he's developing a curveball. Um, he had a slider. He showcased it. Brian Smith talked about how he developed it in the Arizona Fall League in 2018. But in 2021, he was experimenting with a sinker and a changeup and a curveball. Fast, fast forward two years later, and now he's a Cy Young candidate in a completely different fashion. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like that two-year window where dramatic changes have occurred. It's as recent as last June um, where a dramatic change has also occurred as well. And then in June of last year, you could very easily see his fastball shape starting to shift to more cutting action. Mm-hmm. And that became his dominant fastball type, where now his fastball is thrown with a way that generates more spin-based cutting action in a unique way where it's also not dropping down but sustaining its carry, throwing 92, 93, 94 miles per hour. And no pitcher in Major League Baseball can do that as often as he can. The only similar guy with his numbers is Clayton Kershaw. But Kershaw has only thrown four-seam fastballs like 400 times this year. Um, And he's actually... Mm -hmm relied more so on a legitimate cutter um, than he has in years past. So so Steele is really the only pitcher of his kind. And he developed in a way that I never saw coming because as recently as two years ago, he was trying a sinker. And that's yeah. could, that could not be more opposite than yeah. the pitcher we're seeing today. It's amazing watching him just go. I mean, you're right. He's throwing 92, 93, maybe hitting 94. Yeah. And he's just gassing guys up with a high fastball. It's, I mean, it's crazy. And he was talking to you know a lot of the guys at CSGO over the offseason about like what the change was last year. And you can you can point back to like when John Lester said, "Hey, go down mm-hmm. in with your fastball." And I, I think you know he said that was a big deal for him. Um, but I think in general, it was really that cutting fastball that made the difference. Where he went to that exclusively, and in a way where if he did try to go down and in with his fastball, if he missed up in a way to right-handed batters, which you actually see quite often, he does mm-hmm. miss. Uh, but the pitch is so good, he gets away with it. His stuff yeah. is so good, he gets away with it. Um, and that's the hallmark of an ace-type pitcher is that even when you're not commanding, similar to like vintage Arietta, his stuff is so good that he just draws misses and we contact when he's not even trying to do it. And I remember, I think um, you guys had Tommy Hadovy on. Was it the end of last yeah. year? Maybe the off season? One of the, yeah, the off season. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about Steele. I remember Hadovy talking about the good misses. Like, yeah. Just exactly. missing in ways that don't wind up in the in the seats. Exactly. That's the thing. It's those competitive misses, right? Where you can look at James Tyone, who we just talked about. When he misses by like a slim margin with his fastball, it's game over. He's mm-hmm. out of the game. Right, like that's the mar- like that's the margin of error that these guys have. That I always like. It's so crazy to think about, but like for Tyone, really the margin of error is that his fastball is just spinning a little bit differently. By like, if you look at a clock, by like fifteen minutes, a tiny little shift, and that's the difference of making like you know in free agency terms like seventy million to like making like fifteen twenty million. It's just mm-hmm. a little marginal difference like that. So. You know, for, if you can expand that margin of error, which is what Steele is doing with his fastball, then you are more likely to have success and last longer. And for Steele, because he has that margin of error, I'm way more confident now than I ever have been ever watching him develop. Yeah, I remember watching him come on last year, and I didn't know if it was just different. Like, would it would it hold up? 
And then he started this year and like, it it looks good. And I've been really impressed too. Obviously he's tied to Lester from their conversation last year and they've got some similarities, but that, that dog in him when, how many times this year has he gotten, there's a walk or he hits somebody or a couple guys get a hit and then that's it. He just, just buckles down and gets through it. Yeah. And that's like those, you know, intangibles. The the way that I, I, I kind of think about the, the intangibles is like the ability to uh, take a high stress moment and stay within your routine and not let those high stress moments kind of bring you outside of your routine, outside of like your like brain processes. And I think still you see that like even when the leverage is high, Sixth inning, seventh inning, bases are loaded. You know, he's not feeling his best as he maybe did earlier in the game. He can still maximize what he has, stay mm-hmm. within himself, even though it may not be his optimal self, but in a way that's still able to get out. And that's what you saw with Lester for many years. That's what you saw with Kyle Hendricks at his best. Mm-hmm. That's what you saw with a, a lot of these veteran Cubs pitchers over the years. It's fun to watch. It is. We're, going tomorrow, we're very lucky. We're, yes, very we're, lucky very to have, we're very lucky to have Justin Steele on this team. Um, and also very lucky to have a coaching staff who can find those traits, right? Like, that's the one thing with Steele. My last thought here with Steele is that if you think about it, no pitcher has his stuff, right? Like, if you mm-hmm. just, if you go to, uh, uh, like, Alex Chamberlain's, like, pitching database, I'll send you the link. He may have it, but if not, okay. I'll send you the link. But if you just filter by vertical break, velocity and horizontal break, no one has this fastball, right? Again, Kershaw's the only guy who has maybe a, a similar fastball. So I give Tommy Hadevi and those guys a lot of credit for identifying this because sometimes you try to like find a pitcher and fit him into a mold, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we talk about stuff plus and pitching butt and driveline stuff model. And you try to fit these guys into a mold and that is informative, but there are perhaps sometimes outliers and Steele is an outlier in that regard. And they were somehow able to go against like the, the common knowledge and find what works for him. So I, it's, it's a multifaceted effort from the coaches to Justin Steele, who ultimately has to execute himself. Yeah. Well, it's fun to watch this development because now, I mean, on the one hand, you've got Steele, who's been in the organization a long time. You've got, you know, if we back up to, say, 2019, the Cubs were full of Kyle Hendricks was the, the always the best example. But you had yeah. Alec Mills and, you, and they wound up picking up Zach Davies in the Hugh Darvish trade. And like at some point they were they were all throwing like eighty eight miles an hour, yeah. all relying on changeups. And there's so much more versatility now, and it seems like they're willing to go go find something weird, go find something different, go find like Mark Leiter is a good example. So he's a guy who bounced around sort of a starter sometimes kind of okay. And they realize he's got that split. So let's just use the hell out of the let's split. Let's just use that split. Yeah. Yeah. And that split is unique. I was talking to a pitching coach about this. I'm like, tell me what you think about Mark Leiter. Um, and you know, he goes back in, he looks at like the slow-mo video of his grip and Mark Leiter has a unique split grip, or it's a four-seam split grip. And by metrics alone, although a splitter is hard to project, but like it shouldn't have as much success as it does. <laughs> like you wouldn't teach Mark Leiter's splitter to someone developing the pitch. And so to your point, 
Yeah, it's weird. And he was just DFA'd later last, you know, offseason, right? Yeah. So, like, of course, maybe they thought they could bring him back, and ultimately they did, but that's still inher- an inherent risk the moment you say goodbye for at least, you know, 10 days. Um, One thing about podcasting is I'm yeah. very recorded on the record is not really <laughs> believing in lighter until, yeah, you know, the, it, after the first month of the season. Yeah, and, you know, for podcasters like, you know, you and I, first and foremost, take no offense, and I always say this to myself, we really are so much on the outside. Oh, so far on the outside. So far on the outside that, like, I'm almost uncomfortable even talking about this with a degree of confidence. (laughs) Like, that's why, like, when I talk about this, I'm trying to, like, I talk about how I think about it, and a lot of it's probably wrong, right? Um, But it is interesting when you can recalibrate how you think about things when you see Mark Leiter, like, develop, you know, not develop, but optimize that that forcing splitter. Or when you tear and see Tyone use his cutter, talking about his forcing fastball, even Justin Steele developing this cut this cutting fastball. Like it's it is unique. And now that you bring it up, I never thought about it like that. Like how they're kind of going and finding these unique pitch types that don't fit that mold. That is that is very interesting. Well, I was thinking because like I was I was loving the Scotty Efrost story last year. Yeah. Um, and when he hit a point where he wasn't really developing anymore, but he had toyed around with the sidearm stuff and they said, well, you're probably not much longer for the organization. If you want to try the sidearm, we'll give it a shot. Yeah. And it clearly worked. And now it's like, after they traded him away, I kind of wonder if that's what they, if they saw some Efros and Quas. Everyone sees a release point. Yeah. I mean, it's, of course it's hard to not draw parallels on like yeah. just their mechanics alone. Um, but yeah, even if the pitching's not the same, there, there's funk in the delivery there that you there's don't funk see. In the, they're extreme deliveries, right? Like, that's yeah. that's what it is. They're very extreme. And even, um, oh, man, I'm hoping I'm not going to get his name wrong here, but I want to say Kyle Ryan, that lefty a while yes. ago. Yep. Yeah, I think his name is Kyle Ryan. There's so many names in my head now. But he was one of those guys where he had that crazy release point mm-hmm. way off the rubber. And he had some of the most extreme release points Um in professional baseball, it didn't work out for the Cubs, but at the time he was actually quite good. I think during that COVID stretch, uh, he was. Yep. Yeah, and so he had a good run with the Twins too. I think maybe before the Cubs picked him up. Did he? Yeah. So I mean, maybe it was you know, after. I can't remember. Yeah, you say that whole entire era sometimes is a blur for me. Um, <laughs> but if you look at Quas, the parallels and the like mechanics and the release point where they differ is that Scott Efros's slider is like a genuinely insane pitch, like generating like 18 inches of horizontal break. Uh, for Quas, he did just add a new slider. I don't know if you saw that, but he- I did. He, I was, yeah. I liked so that he, graphic you put together. That was really thank cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we're working on a story actually, and we talked to Quas. Um, it's not, you know, I have to write and everything, but we asked him, hey, did you develop a new slider? And he said, yeah, I developed a new slider. Uh, so now it's moving from three inches of horizontal break to 10 inches of horizontal break. And that's kind of where it is between like nine to 12, maybe 13 inches. So it's not near the Scott Efros, like 17, 18, 19, 20, 20 mm-hmm. plus at times. But they are different in the way they approach at best. They have different fastball shapes. They have different abilities, maybe to get opposite hand in this out. So it will be interesting. I think with Quas, he is a project. Like it's unclear if he can have sustained success in the next like three weeks. Um, yeah. But he's interesting. You have to take those risks that time. Well, and he's had flashes where he's looked really, really good. Oh, yeah, but, then yeah. he, but also you add a pitch like that with that kind of movement. And that's why we see slider going left hand batter's box sometimes. 
and you lose sometimes you lose that confidence too like in his last mm-hmm. outing in colorado he threw i think 19 pitches only one slider this was yeah. throwing fastballs it's like oh man like i'm watching that and i'm like bracing for impact even though he got those first two outs i'm like oh geez just please god give me one one out <laughs> and yeah somebody just happen, get unfortunately. pop it up ah didn't happen though nope um yeah, so going through that, and I think they've shown that with the bullpen. So I know coming yeah. into the season, I was starting to feel really good about over the last, what, really since Breslow came in, they've done a really good job with bullpens. They found guys sure. off the scrap heap. They haven't up, up until now. They haven't had a lot of young arms coming up to the system, but they go find Andrew Chafin. They go find Chris Martin. They go find uh, David Robertson last year, and yeah. I think this year, like the one that really popped to me. When the Cubs claimed Merriweather last year in December, like you just saw his stuff and like, they're going to do something cool with that. And it's either going to flame out horrifically and he won't make it through spring training or he's going to be really good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Merriweather is unique because the sweeping slider is so popular now. Like whenever you hear about slider, the sweeping action comes to mind, right? Yeah. Uh, Merriweather doesn't have that. Merriweather slider is very tight. It's very mm-hmm. similar to what you see with Abra Auslice, uh, uh famous slider now, uh, where it's thrown with velocity and it just kind of goes north to south. And so as a result, Merriweather is able to get lefties out. And that's been a huge advantage when Auslice was on the team and healthy, uh, where you could deploy Merriweather against left-handed lineups in the seventh, eighth inning uh, to get those guys out. When he was picked up kind of like you, I'm thinking, oh man, like they're going to, they see something like obviously this, the numbers look bad, like the, you know, ERA over six or whatever, FIP is not good, uh, but they see something and you have the velocity, you have a slider that probably needs work and they worked on it. And now he's their closer until Adber's back and healthy, hopefully soon. And even the first couple of weeks of the season, like he did not get off to a good start. Like no. two of his first three outings were a disaster. Well, his first outing, everyone's like, oh, DFA this guy. It's like, hold on one second. <laughs> give, it, give it a few more outings before you start saying that. And I think at one point, I hadn't even realized, I think it was June, he didn't give up a run. Yeah. I was looking yeah. through the splits and like, okay, he hasn't given up a run in like six weeks. There were like 11 or 12 straight outings where he gave up maybe one run or no runs. It was insane. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Nuts. Um, that's fun to watch, especially because this year, like they, they picked up Fulmer and that was not good to start, but then he, Fulmer was always going to figure it out and he, he did yeah. until he got overworked. But then like Boxberger, I thought was going to be a big part of this bullpen. And yeah, uh, I think he was, I think he clearly got hurt early in the season and tried to pitch yeah. for a while. But. Yeah. That was the disappointing one because you know, the Cubs, when they came into the season, they apparently slotted for around $5 million underneath the uh, luxury tax threshold. Mm-hmm. And so they signed Fulmer for about $3 million. I'm like, all right, like I can see the logic, you know, not spending that much money on a reliever, has a recent history of success, maybe some tooling around can get him to the next level. And they kind of did that injury aside. They kind of actually got Fulmer to that next level, I think. Boxberger... This, I think it was a similar concept in a way that they thought Boxman would, would provide more stability in case something happened in later in the year, which is what we're seeing now where the bullpen's gassed. And so Boxberger has not been that guy. If he is healthy, though, there's an optimistic side of me that hopes in the next two and a half weeks he can at least be average you know, mm-hmm. at least eight innings in the fifth and sixth inning. But that that is a disappointing one and likely influenced by that injury, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I think so. And now we got Luke Little in the bullpen who came up. Um, he's exciting. He's a he, he's a weird dude. Like I watch him throw, and I didn't get a chance to catch a lot of his minors work. Yeah. But he's a huge guy. I I had forgotten he's actually from a rival high school to where my kids go. Is he really? Mm-hmm. So you're he's, he's old enough. He's older enough for my oldest that they, they didn't cross. So I wasn't paying that much attention to high school ball here at that point. Okay. Um, but he's from Charlotte, uh, which is where I am. And, and he, you watch him throw and obviously a huge dude. Yeah. And he brings the gas, but his yeah. motion is so deliberate and slow. It's gotta he be such is, deception for the hitters. Yes. And his extension, the point from when he, when his front foot hits the dirt to when he releases it is about a foot and a half greater than league average with that mm-hmm. frame and that release point. And he said he changed his slider, you know, since being drafted by the Cubs. And that slider now has about 17 inches of horizontal break. And I just mentioned Scott Efrost, you know, about 10 minutes ago, having around 18 inches. So different release points. Scott Efrost, a little bit more uh, horizontal break on his peak sliders. But Little also has that heavy sweeping action from that mm-hmm. unique release point. And he has 97 miles per hour to pair it with. The problem with Little is that the consistency of the feel comes and goes, right? Mm-hmm. So his walk rate in AAA, I think was like five and a half batters per nine. Um, Sounds right, yeah. Yeah, too high. And you mm-hmm. even can see that being a problem, perhaps in the big leagues. I thought we would see a little more over the past week, but given some of the situations where he was not in, my thinking is the Cubs coaches don't quite trust him yet. Mm-hmm. They have that consistent command. Um, and that's the problem you have with these young pitchers who are also developing new pitches. Well, that's, I think, been a challenge. One thing I've talked a lot about, and I, you guys have as well, but the Ross has had his circle of trust of about four guys, plus maybe yeah. Boss. But now Azalea's on the shelf. Fulmer was down for a while. Lighter splits not moving the way it, it was earlier in the season, largely probably due to overwork. Um, I've been talking about wanting to get expand that circle of trust, get more guys in the mix. And then yeah. they just keep playing five to four, three to two, one nothing games. And I, I, point. I get frustrated with Ross sometimes, but I know exactly why he's doing it. Like he wants to win these yeah. games. He's here no doubt. Him. No doubt. And yeah, you know, there's two ways I think about the Ross stuff. Like you can get into the fine nitpicky details of like, oh, you know, I wish, uh, you know, they took Quas out earlier than they did in Colorado. And I even said that, you know, in the moment and everything. But like you take a step back and the circle of trust is a group of pitchers who most of us did not anticipate would be in a circle this time this no. year. Right. So in one sense, we can criticize some of the decisions. But ultimately, where I fall back on is I'm quite happy with the performance Russ has done in the bullpen where you have cohesion with Tommy Hadovy and the front office and, and the scouts and, and getting to the point where you're actually experimenting with Quas mm-hmm. in higher leverage to enter that circle of trust. And for 13 innings, he provided top notch value, right? Yes. Like his ERA in like 13, I think he only gave like one or two runs, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So in a way I, I understand what Ross is doing, but, taking a step back and looking at how he managed the bullpen in April, May, June, when you had Fulmer not at his best, when you had Boxberger go down, when you're dealing with uh, uh, Merriweather's brief, rough start. Ultimately, he gave them the opportunities. He capitalized on when they started to peak, 
and he put him in situations where he actually got the most value out of mm-hmm. those guys, right? So I do give him credit for the cohesion and the way that the coaching staff um, and the players and he himself went about this. And if you had told me before, like halfway through spring training, the Cubs would, would be at this point in the season yeah. with getting virtually nothing from Brad Boxberger, Keegan Thompson, and Brandon Hughes. I'd be shocked. Yeah. Like, I think <laughs> that's going to be a disaster of a bullpen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, like I'm hoping that's not a disaster in the next two weeks here, given some yeah. like the outside injuries. But like, yeah, like in my, like I thought, okay, Brandon Hughes is going to be a 50 inning plus guy this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought at the very least, if Boxberger is not, you know, a back end bullpen guy, he's at least going to get innings, you know, like 40, 50 innings. Has go not take done that. Go get a couple innings when they're up or down. Yeah, and he hasn't done that either. So yeah, if you were to have told me, and going back to our earlier point to start this podcast, like the way they got to this point, like it's an extreme version of what I ever thought. It's it's in, it's quite insane when you, when you think about the, rec, the the path to get to this point. When wasn't Daniel Palencia started this season as a, as a starting pitcher? Yeah, he flew through the system too. And they said, you know what? We're just going to make you into a reliever and see what you got and push you in 10th inning situations in the playoff race. It's insane. It's, like, it's literally well, insane. He makes his major league debut in that extra inning game against Milwaukee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it kind of points to like some underlying concerns and problems with the bullpen and injuries and all that. Sure. But like, it is crazy that, that this is happening. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to talk about Assad a little bit. So he's a guy that like we've talked about Merriweather and some of these guys with unique weird pitches or now we're finally starting to see velocity in the bullpen, which is which is nice. It's no longer just the teams we're playing against that yeah. bring out these ninety eights throughout the end of a game. But like I watch Assad and I don't know, he just he looks like that kind of chunky nerdy kid and doesn't look like he'd be that great. His stuff doesn't pop and he just gets guys out. I know he was a little rough his last start. That's his, probably his worst start of the season. Didn't have his command, but it's also Coors Field. So um, there's a factor there. And he's allowed to have a bad one. But like, what no, do you see not. with Assad? <laughs> That's true. He's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, Assad is interesting. I like the deep pitch mix. Five, six pitch types he can lean on. I like that a lot, actually. Um, he does not grade well by like stuff mm-hmm. graders. Which, you know, is caught is these stuff models have gotten a lot of attention and they deserve a lot of attention. They are very good. Um, you know, the limitation I see with the stuff models and like stuff plus like Eno Saris's model. Like actually, I went to grad school with the dude who made it, Max. Like he, you know, we were in the okay. same class together. Um, and so, you know, and now he works for the Astros. But like, <laughs> what I wish we had was a better uh, public like repository of how these mm-hmm. models work. They work well on predicting the like the, the similar type pitchers. They do not work well on predicting the outliers, which is kind of how these machine learning models work. Um, and so when I'm looking at stuff grades, the first thing I think of generally speaking is like, all right, well, does this guy fit in the normal distribution of pitchers? Um, or does this guy fall outside that normal distribution? And if so, what is the likelihood that this stuff gray that I'm seeing is not representative of, of like reality? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at, um, 
when I look at some of these guys who have, let's say, stuff grades of like 40 on the 80 scale, like which is basically what Assad has across all of his pitch types, mm-hmm. then I start looking at, okay, what is his pitches, what do his pitches actually look like? And if you look at his sinker, his sinker has more uh, induced vertical break than about 90% of sinkers, okay. which is not good by stuff models because the amount of dropping action tends to be more predictive for preventing runs. So you would think sinker that goes that has more ride to it is not good, but in his sense, it's been good for him. Um, cutter is the same thing. His cutter tends to have more ride on it than most cutters, and you would think that would not be good, but for him, it, it has been good. Uh, the velocity is about normal, 92, 93, 94, 95 at times. Nothing that the, the, the below batters away with, but he makes it work. So part of me wants to believe he can be a consistent contributor. And I think I think where I fall back on is I think he can be, while considering some of the limitations of the stuff models. Um, but at the same time, he would be having success in ways that pitchers don't have success in. Mm-hmm. And the Cubs have had success with those pitchers and steel and lighter as what we talked about. But there's still a degree of discomfort knowing that he'd be doing it in a way that we just don't typically see. Yeah. So I'm curious about it. I'm optimistic. I like the deep pitch mix, but I always think, okay, if he has success, he'd be among the first to do it in this fashion. I'm always amazed with, like, he's not a guy who's going to go through seven innings of, like, a perfect game. Like, there are always yeah. guys on the bases. There are a lot of balls in play, walk a couple guys. Um, but he always seems to get so much weak contact when he needs to. And I also wonder if maybe he's a guy who is, frankly, better on the Cubs than he would be other places because of Dansby and the Horner. Defense, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, they just hoover those balls up and... It's a Turn two, beautiful, get him out of it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's going to get better with PCA in there consistently. Well, and that's one of the things I thought too earlier in the season with Stroman, like all the talk of the opt out and yeah. we'll see what he does. I, I, I think I'd be surprised if he opts out, but I can see the argument to still do it. Yeah. Same. But um, I think he's a guy who I think probably recognizes with this infield defense behind him, you know, he's probably maybe Chicago maybe isn't the little number one place for him, but there aren't many places, aren't many teams that are going to take that ground ball profile and convert it as much as the Cubs will. I think, you know, it's a conversation to be had maybe in the off season. Um, but I think I would imagine he's going to opt in. Uh, I think he has enough confidence in himself that he can be healthy next year and then mm-hmm. get a, bigger sum of money by having like a prove it type year, accepting the 21 and a half million and playing in front of this defense. I think he would like that idea. Um, and I think he might think he can make more money that direction. So I think he does opt in. That would be my guess. Yeah, I would agree. That's the way I'm leaning to. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I want to get into is we're finally seeing young pitchers come up, you know, for mm-hmm. the whole Theo era, we got what, like three guys no were truly really homegrown. Zero pitchers. Like <laughs> zero. Um, but I, like I was looking through rosters the other day. I did a comparison to 2016 to 2019 to today and looking really at young players as a whole. And obviously the 2016 team, you can sort of count Hendricks because he was in the Cubs minor league system for a couple of yeah. years before he came up. But otherwise it was all hitters. And then there were maybe like two guys, I think, uh, Blanket on who the second one was. It's a relief pitcher in 2019. But like now, they've had like 11 homegrown 
guys pitch for them this year. And doing it in ways where they're starting games with Justin Steele and ending games with Albert Alzenline, mm-hmm. um, which are two Theo guys, ironically yeah. enough. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, to also the new front office's credit and Dan Cantrovitz and scouting department, like they went out and traded for Daniel Palencia and able to yep. move into the system relatively fast and have at least eating innings as soon as this year from a recent trade they made. Uh, it is a beautiful sight to see pitching. That's what I will say. Uh, it was a rude awakening in 2018 when you hear around the league that the Cubs are behind. It mm-hmm. didn't align with my belief of Theo Epstein's front office. Uh, we just won the World Series. <laughs> You're in a state of denial. And we, I think as fans, we could kind of sense it. Like we could see, huh, why do the Dodgers have eight 100 mile per hour guys <laughs> and we have a bunch of 90 92 mile per hour guys something doesn't seem right here yes uh and they rectified it it took them a little bit of time to do it mm-hmm. uh they got kind of muddied with covid and having to cut scotty personnel mm-hmm. and that five round draft in 2020 but they're doing it and they're also able to not just like draft and identify talent through their scouting department, but there's a different side to it where now they're going back and optimizing guys they already had in their system, mm-hmm. um, like Steele and Alzali. Like the thing with those two guys is they are not the same pitchers that they were three years ago. In some sense, Steele not sitting by as he was in May of 2022. In adverse sense, completely different pitcher than he was in 2019 when he debuted as well. Mm-hmm. So, you have the scouting side, and then you have the actual like coaching side, and they've been able to mirror those two together and also boost both those areas of the organization to uh, respectable heights. Well, I think it's fun to watch. I mean, obviously, we've seen Kate Horton fly through. Um, oh, he's going to be something else, man. He is. But he like is, Jordan, yeah. Jordan, Jordan Wicks, yeah. he, he moved pretty quickly through the system. I don't think they rushed him, but like you watch yeah. him pitch now, and he's... He just walks out there and looks like he belongs. Calm, collected. It's got that. Uh, it's got that veteran grizzly sense to him. Yeah, man, beautiful. It's been impressive to watch. Like he'll get in jams or he'll fall behind a hitter. He just battles back. Like he's done it a million times at this level. I love Jordan Wicks. I, I I love. Like I, my ideal baseball game is to win ten nothing and have zero stress. My worst possible fan experience is like. It's like how those playoff close games, like how like a game seven, thank God they won game seven of the World Series. By oh, the way, yes. or I, I, we, we would not be doing this podcast, I promise you that. Like those are my nightmares. Um, yeah. So whenever you have like Jordan Wicks and those types of pitchers who come in, command well, have multiple pitch types that can, that can get opposite hand in this out, I love those guys. Like maybe he may not have like the nine plus K per nine ceiling. He may not have that Kate Horton ceiling, but you know what? He has that middle, the perhaps top of the rotation ceiling if he has elite command to get there. And regardless, the floor is quite high. I think with Jordan Wicks, great changeup, good fastball. Uh, like Tyon, he has the ability to understand his areas of weakness, very cerebral guy, hard worker, and has had success early on. And I think the one thing that really stood out to me is I like the stuff. I've liked watching him pitch. But that first outing gives oh. up a bomb. 
gives up a walk and a hard hit single. Get right like, back at it. And like how many guys would just, even if they become a good pitcher and they're fine. Yeah. Like you're not surviving that outing. No. And he no. just gets 15 straight guys out. I like would have a case. panic attack on the mound. Yes. <laughs> that happened to me. And then the next, what is he struck out? I think I forgot what it was, but maybe like, out, like five, five of six or something. Yeah. Like that five of six that. and like sporting like beautiful changeups, like nonstop. That's yeah. You, you really can't stress that more having a guy with that type of like mental fortitude and being able to stay within himself, even when things are getting a little testy at times. Yeah, when it goes back in the offseason, like when Wilson Contreras moved on, yeah. um, I don't know enough to know how good Wilson Contreras is at the game planning stuff. But you see consistently with Tommy Hadovy and Jan Gomes, I think Miguel Amaya is good at it, um, at least by reputation, where like Wicks was trying to build off the fastball. And that first outing, he didn't have the fastball. Yes. And so they just yes. came together and said, you know what? Yes. Just forget the fastball, just use other stuff. Yeah. And just adjust on the fly. And they do a great job of that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Because that's, that's something I saw too. I'm like, um, you know, when I saw the fastball not there, I'm like, oh boy, this is not good. But Amaya caught him that start. And Which I think it was, was smart because he caught him a bunch at Iowa. He, which is very smart. Because number one, he knows him, like you said. But number two, Amaya's caught Hendricks like every start. So outside of oh, that... Yeah. Outside of that recent Kyle Hendricks start, I think it was basically every start. And Kyle Hendricks calls his own pitches, right? So, uh, you know, in a way, Amaya is able to learn from Kyle Hendricks like every fifth day. In this season, Kyle Hendricks has relied on his changeup more than any other season. Where if you look at just the frequency of usage, his changeup is number one. Mm-hmm. And so part of me, and who knows if this is like actually what, what's going on, but like when I'm watching that, I'm like, all right, like he's throwing a ton of changeups. And like, you know, Hendricks just did the same thing literally like two days ago. And so yeah. I'm wondering if like Amaya is also developing in a way that he's learning from Hendricks and he sees that he's like, you know what, this changeup's good. Like I, I, I also know Jordan Wicks, I'm just going to start calling changeups. And Wicks used that changeup, that start more than any other pitch type. And he's continued to rely on that changeup uh, more than I imagined. So that's where that leadership and that like, ability to learn when you call these guys up comes in handy. Um, it's also one reason why I'm thankful they didn't sell beyond just a playoff uh, chase because I think having this environment actually pushes development a little bit faster mm-hmm. and I think there's value in that instead of like trading these guys like trading Hendricks and getting back like you know a flyer that maybe can be like you know a bullpen contributor next season. Like I'd rather keep those guys in promote the development and get someone like Jordan Wicks to that next step a little bit faster. Yeah. And there was a point coming into the season. I really thought this would probably be Kyle's last year with the Cubs. I'm shocked. He's pitching. Like, honest to God. Yeah. Like I, I heard Capsler tear. I'm like, he's done. Like if we get 15 innings, I'll be happy. Yeah. And at this point, like it, it's basically a no brainer to pick up that option, right? Like you can't, the way he's I would going, think you so. I yeah. would think so. I think it's for like what? 16 million. Yeah. Um, you know, that's going to be an interesting one. We'll, we'll see that, what happens. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the dollar signs start adding up once you factor do. in Strowman and Bellinger and Hendricks. And we still have to get Bellinger. We still have to sign Otani. Otani, of course, is a must. Yeah. You got to, you know, subtract, you know, 50 million from right there. <laughs> but uh, no, Kyle Hendricks has been so much fun. And I think I've got to think it helped those guys at Iowa. It sounds like he was really engaged with the Iowa Cubs when he was yeah. down there. 
Yeah. Um, so they, even when he's not pitching, he's sitting there and he's talking them through what he would do in that situation. And uh, you've heard Amaya talk about it a lot. And I think having that kind of guy in there is so valuable. I think so too. And I think that's where like the clubhouse culture and like you always, you know, you always hear when the team is winning, clubhouse culture is always good. And, you know, when the team's losing, clubhouse culture can always be improved. And that's true <laughs> to a degree uh, as like a generality. But I do... I do think in today's like modern baseball world, um, people get different ideas and they need to go through like that iteration process faster. And I think having a group of teammates who have success can just make that go a little bit faster. And I think mm-hmm. dating back to uh, you know Christopher Morell's uh, debut last season, one of, I personally think, I think one of the reasons why he was able to have success relatively fast and even at times carry that on to the season. He's been great this year, actually, in the bulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what he learned from like Wilson Contreras, where there was that famous video where Wilson's like, breathe, breathe. right? Yep. And now every at bat, you see Morel breathe, right? And I think he's carried that over to how he approaches at bats. And then similarly, Morel's talking about what he learned from Dansby Swanson on his pregame routine in San Francisco many months ago. Morel takes a step back, sits for about three, four days, comes back in, goes on that hot stretch, right? Mm-hmm. So part of me thinks, okay, what would happen to players like Morel if you don't have Wilson Contreras and Dansby Swanson type figures who you can learn from? And so I, that's where I think the leadership and the whole clubhouse presence does matter. Well, and we, you talked about it earlier. We, we talked about Jamison Tyone. Yeah. And with the way he'll sit there with the press and break himself down, you can it's only amazing. imagine what he's doing in the clubhouse with the other pitchers. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think of um, the one similarity of Tyone is like, uh, is Hayden Wisniewski, who mm-hmm. also is kind of like an obsessive psycho pitcher talking about numbers and like that. So I think Hayden still needs to improve on some stuff. And like, I think he needs nothing he knows he said he needs a pitch to to get lefties out right mm-hmm. he doesn't have one right now um if he does not develop that pitch he's probably not gonna be a starting pitcher so it yeah. kind of works but part of me thinks because he has that innate trace and he's with an environment like with tyone and with tommy hadavi i think the capacity for him to develop that pitch is there even though you don't see it and you mm-hmm. wouldn't project it but if he comes back out next season with a new pitch type or a slightly different tweak on his cutter or something, like it would not surprise me at all. And the next thing you know, he's taking that next step forward as you saw with Justin Steele. And now he's in your starting rotation when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. Well, and the rest of his stuff, I mean, he's he's got good stuff. I mean, he's pumping oh, 90, 98 out of the bullpen right now. And Which I love. <laughs> yeah. He probably is a starting pitcher to that back to 96. But, it, but yeah. it means that 98, 99 is in the tank the moment he needs it. Yes. And I think at the very least with Hayden, because he has that sweeping slider and he has that like fastball at 98-99, at the very least, he's probably a good bullpen arm, you know? Yeah. Like oh, that yeah. can contribute. So he's going to be a guy for this team, right? Um, now, maybe the expectations given the starting pitching struggles this year have gone down a little bit. But again, there's... For me, I think about it in two ways. Like on paper, you want to project him to be a starting pitcher given his current profile at this point. But there's a different side where it's like, okay, he has this ability, he has this obsessiveness. What is the likelihood he can actually flip the script and develop that pitch type? And I also think you have to consider that it is it is not unrealistic to think he could do it. Yeah, I agree. Well, one last oddity I want to talk talk with you about is uh, Young Gomes. 
Um, okay. So today he came up late, um, hit what could have been a sack fly, but did decide yeah. not to push it. But I've been looking at his numbers this year, and for his career, he's been in the league a long time. And if you look at like fan graphs, leverage margins, he's he's bit roughly a two fifty hitter for his career, and all of his splits and leverage situations line up pretty much with that. He's like two forty six to two fifty two or something like that. Um, this year he is progressively better. Medium leverage, he's better than actually. Let me uh, yeah, get those numbers up. Don't misspeak. You have people scream at you if you get them wrong. (laughs) Exactly. I actually don't even know his numbers in medium leverage. I know like uh, someone said, oh, he's a WRC plus of like 160 plus in like high leverage or something like that. Maybe we're in a scoring position. Um, but yeah, I don't know what his numbers are in those situations. So for career, and I'll just keep it to... Um, for career, he's 92 WRC plus in low leverage, 90 in medium and 89 in high. So kind of what most guys are, right? Like you, yeah. you kind of do what you do. And if we flip it to 2023, you know, he's, he's a 66 WRC plus in low leverage, which is not what it is. 66, yeah. <laughs> 121 in medium leverage and 183 in high. Is it 183? Yes. That's absurd. His Let's K double rate. that. Let's triple yeah, that. His K rate in low leverage is 22% going down to yeah. 16.7, going down to 8.3. <laughs> Wait, That's point, not sustainable. 8.3. 8. 8. 8. 8. 8. 8. 8. 8. Yes. 8.3. That's absurd. Yes. <laughs> That's absurd. I mean, his slash line is 452, 472, 581 in high leverage. Yeah. That's that's insane. That's I don't know how to those, explain like, that. That's just one of those fluke things that happens in like a magic year, I guess. I guess, right? I'd be I'd be curious if someone ends up talking about Jan. I'm like... You know, and ask them like what like what's going on here? Because mm-hmm. that's like for when I when I see extremes like that, of course it looks fluky, but that is such an extreme an eight percent K rates and WRC plus of like almost f- like threefold from yeah. low leverage to high leverage. Part of me wants to believe that's not like totally like hundred percent fluky. And I actually would imagine that's not the case. I think maybe there's some like approach change or maybe, you know, I don't know. Someone has to ask Jan Gomez about that. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, the, the sample size isn't huge. He's got 31 plate appearances in high leverage. But like his low leverage is 185 plate appearances and his medium leverage is 122. Yeah. So that 122 is a pretty solid sample. Well, it's it's the, so I'm looking at, you know, my fan grass page here. So with runners on base, his K rate is 14%. So um, oh, what is this? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. Now I can't see my computer. But it's around, so it's around, you know, 14, 15%. So something in his mind is like, okay, time to make contact. There's men on base, time to make contact. So that might be an approach change, right? That'd be worth like asking him about and seeing what's going on. Yeah. Get, you know? get Ryan on that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll text him right now. He's probably sick <laughs> of my text. <laughs> so um, I guess as we head into the home stretch, we've got 15 games left. What are, you, what are you looking for? What do you think they're going to be able to pull off here? Uh, or are you just trying to survive it and stay sane? Dude, the car is driving itself at this point. Like, there's nothing you can predict. You know, when you have 15 games, like, you're just on for the ride and you cross your fingers and you hope and you pray and you try to get all the karma in the world and hopefully it works out, right? I think, like, where my angst goes is just that bullpen. I think everyone sees it, right? Yeah. Um, hopefully, Fulmer is healthy, does not look like he did in that save, even though he 
got out of it, but you hope he's healthy. You hope Adber comes back relatively soon after that brief stint. Uh, you hope Strowman can provide innings. Um, you hope Boxberger can provide innings. Just have a deeper bullpen is kind of where I'm hoping we see. Mm-hmm. If they do and that, win. Though. Please win. I want the playoffs. Well, they're going to play a better team this weekend, so that, that's how the whole season's gone, right? You, oh, my God. d backs are struggling, though. I just read this uh, number. They have, like, you know, I think they're worse than the Cubs recently in runners in scoring position in their past seven games. So oh. that includes the Cubs series. But, like, you know, both teams are struggling offensively, so one has to break out. Can't all be one nothing games. Can't all be. Well, they can, actually, <laughs> recently. So famous last words. Well, at least we're going to miss Gallon and Kelly, so that'll help. Oh, thank God, man. That was rough. That was rough. Gallon's just disgusting. Are you going for the whole series? Right now, it's just Saturday for sure. I might try to get out there Friday, but I have to, like, ditch work. And mm. hopefully no one's listening to this from that particular workplace. But uh, It's a day job, right? Yeah, it's a day job. So hopefully I can get out there Friday as well. But Saturday for sure. Well, thanks for coming on. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, yeah. So, um, first off, thanks for having me. I think you're doing yeah. great stuff with your podcast. I think Thank you. you know it's an exciting time to have Cubs podcasts. And, it is. Uh, your recent one with Brian was awesome. You got a good podcasting voice. I don't have this podcasting voice that you have, <laughs> uh, but you have a good podcasting voice. Um, you know, I do a show with Corey Friedman every Sunday at uh, CHGO, CHGO Cubs. They have daily content. Luke Stuckmeyer, Ryan Herrera, Cody Del Mendo, uh, Corey Friedman um, is on there this week. Uh, you know, I've been doing this since 2015. Uh, it's fun to do. It's not like a full-time gig. I just like hopping on, talking baseball. Uh, I, In my free time, all I do is baseball. So hopefully that comes across. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you're not, if you made it this far in the podcast, then I think you would probably like the shows Corey and I do on Sundays. So uh, uh, come on over and have some fun. Great. Well, thank you and uh, enjoy the series in Arizona. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, please drop a rating or a review wherever it is you get your podcasts and share the episode with a friend. Just a few seconds gives me great feedback and helps other Cub fans find the show. You can find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, threads blue sky and youtube all at cubs ps plus and check out the patreon page cubspsplus.patreon.com to help support the show and keep it ad free as always the music for this podcast is from prospect park west by jerry mccoy this is mike waller host of the cubs ps plus podcast every day with cubs baseball or talking about cubs baseball is a great day go cubs